Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast." For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, let's bow our heads together for a word of prayer. Father, we are so grateful that you have given us your word, that your word is that which illuminates our thinking to the truth of your creation. It is your word that reveals to us that we are creatures created in your image and that we are fallen and we are dead in our trespasses and sins because of the sin of our father Adam. Nevertheless, the story doesn't stop there, but the Word of God also explains to us that your love provided a perfect salvation. And not only a perfect salvation, but a complete canon of Scripture, whereby we may understand the plan of salvation, the plan that you have for our lives. Now, Father, as we continue our study of these things, putting our focus on the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that we might be strengthened and encouraged and our understanding of who he is and what he has done for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 5, which is where we are in our study of Revelation on Sunday morning. Revelation chapters 4 and 5 opens up for us a vision of the heavenly courtroom scene with God the Father as the Supreme Court of as the supreme judge of heaven sitting upon his throne. Before his throne there are the four living creatures, the 24 elders representing the raptured, rewarded church, and then myriads upon myriads of angels. In this scene, the Apostle John is brought from earth in order to describe it for us at the beginning of what will be known as the tribulation period. As the Apostle John Uh, describes this scene at the beginning of chapter 5. He sees in the right hand of the one who sat upon the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. I pointed out that this seal represents a title deed to the planet. This was typical in the ancient world to seal a legal document, a contract with seven seals. And there is a search then for one who is qualified to open these seals. And in verse 6, John looks and he sees and beholds in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures in the midst of the elders in the middle of this scene surrounded by 
the living creatures and the elders, there is a lamb standing as if slain, indicating the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. As I pointed out, the term lamb is used to refer to the Lord Jesus Christ some 29 times in the book of Revelation. He is seven, the seven horns and seven eyes represent his omnipotence and his omniscience. In verse 7, the lamb then comes forward, takes the scroll from the right hand of him who sat upon the throne, and this causes an outbreak of worship among those who are before the throne. Verse 8, we read, Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, the twenty-four elders, fell down before the lamb, each having a harp, golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. Now, what we are doing uh, this week, next week, is focusing on the words of this song. See, the words of the music that we sing to praise the Lord are significant. They're important. And as we go through this, we see that embedded here is great theology, the foundation for all worship. And we pointed this out several weeks ago as we studied the parallel at the opening introduction in Revelation chapter 4 as the uh, four living creatures sang to the one who sat upon the throne and then the 24 elders also sang to the one upon the throne. The focus there was upon the character, the attributes of the one upon the throne. In Revelation 4, 8, the four living creatures sang, Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So the first thing, I think there's something significant in the order of these uh, songs. There's an emphasis on the distinctiveness of God, His holiness. Holiness, as I pointed out, is one of those uh, Christian words that we use so much nobody knows what it means anymore. And it has to do with the integrity of God, His righteousness, but more than that, His distinctiveness, His uniqueness. He is the Creator God who is over against all creation. He is completely and totally distinct from everything that he has created. That's the starting point. And then the 24 elders sing in verse 11, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. So there is a movement from his distinctiveness to the fact that he alone is the creator. Creation is not an optional doctrine for the believer. Today we live in a world where the whole concept of a special creation by a unique God is under uh, a full-bore attack from the secular media, from the secular culture, and there are a number of books that have been uh, published just recently attacking uh, people who believe in God, believe in uh, biblical creationism. But this is not an option. The idea of a literal 24-hour, seven-consecutive-day creation is not optional to the Scripture. If, if you take out Genesis 1 through 3, if that is not historical, then everything else in the Bible falls apart. Even when we get to Revelation, we realize that the, the, the song of praise to the Lamb for His redemptive work follows an understanding of praise to God the Father because he created all things, and by his will they exist and were created. It is not the result of time plus chance. It is not 
something that just popped up out of chaos, even guided by some sort of uh, hidden hand. It must be the way it is described in Genesis 1 through 3, or everything else uh, falls apart. So the first hymn focused on God's character, second on his work as creator, and then when we come to this hymn in Chapter 5, verse 9, the focus is on the redemptive work upon the Lamb. That is the center of this song, which I have began to explain last week. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. That is the focal point. The new song begins, you, O Lord, are worthy. The idea of worthy means competence. He is qualified. He is entitled to open the scroll and to take ownership of planet Earth. Why? Because he was slain. The word translated slain is the Greek word spadzo, as I pointed out last week, which is a word used frequently to describe the killing of an animal in a sacrifice or in a ritual killing, because the lamb was slain and has redeemed us to God by your blood. That is the focal point. If we were to summarize all of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, it would be in this particular verbiage that he redeemed us by means of his blood. He paid the sin penalty. He paid the price. That is what redemption means. I'm taking time last week, this week, and next week to analyze and to explore what the scripture says about this important doctrine of redemption, what it means to be redeemed by his blood and the extent of the payment of his price, because these are fundamental beliefs to Christianity to understand the work of Christ on the cross, to understand our salvation. And unfortunately, we live in a world today when these concepts are are poorly understood and rarely taught in churches and many congregations. The verbiage is used, but but little is said about them. And it's amazing how few uh, believers really understand what took place on the cross. That transaction that occurred on the cross, I use that word transaction uh, because it explains this, this commercial aspect. Words are used to describe the work of Christ on the cross, such as redemption, such as uh, expiation, the canceling of a debt, even the concept of forgiveness has this idea of the cancellation of a debt indicating a, a judicial or even a financial transaction. There's a lot of economic overtones to those particular words, and we need to understand just what the Scripture is saying here. When we think about redemption, the New Testament verse that should come to our mind is Second Peter two one? Excuse me, Second Peter, First uh, Peter chapter one verse seventeen and eighteen that we were redeemed not with corruptible things such as silver and gold, but as with the precious blood as of a lamb, and that is our focal point. It is the blood of the lamb that paid for our sins. This is the idea of agorazo. It is the payment of a price. In the marketplace, that Greek word, the core noun that you see in that verb is the agora, which was the marketplace in, in a Greek town, the grocery store. And so if you're going to go down to the grocery store or the mall in, in Greece, the agora, you would purchase something. And so 
that was uh, the verb that was used was agorazo, to purchase something out of the marketplace. So we began last week just looking at this doctrine of redemption. Why is it necessary for the Lord Jesus Christ to pay this redemption price? And it takes us back into the early chapters of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, God created man in his image and according to his likeness. These words describe the totality of man's being, not just his immaterial side, but also his physical side. Not that man is is made in some sort of physical likeness of God, that God has two arms, two legs, a head, but that man is designed to represent God physically and spiritually. Man was designed to rule over the creation as God's vicegerent, as his uh, representative. But there was a test, a test to qualify man in this position as the ruler over creation. And that test was a test of obedience, whether or not man would obey God and not eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or whether uh, man would take it upon himself to try to judge God's God's mandates, the veracity of God's uh, decision-making, uh, whether or not we, man he would really die if he ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that's exactly what happened in the temptation in Genesis chapter 3, the serpent who was the representative of Satan. Satan indwelled the serpent and came and tempted the woman that uh, has God really prohibited you from eating of the fruit? And she says, yeah, not only we can't eat it, we can't touch it. We can't... Um, can't t- touch it or in any way be involved with it. And so she's already adding to God's mandate. She's already beginning to uh, put her own uh, cast upon what God had said and change his word, which is typical of the creature trying to refine and redefine what God has said. And so then she begins to look at the fruit and saw that it was good. And the serpent says, you know, God... Uh, you're not going to die. God's going to, in fact, God doesn't want you to eat of the fruit because when you do, you'll be just like him. And so she gets uh, sucked in by his uh, rationale and she eats from the fruit and then she uh, gives to her husband and Adam knowingly eats the fruit. Not in a, He's not deceived as she was. He knowingly eats of the fruit. And that is what brings this thing called spiritual death into the human race. For God had said that in the day that you eat of the fruit, you will certainly die. And the Hebrew construction there means certainty, instant certainty, not something that would happen 930 years later when Adam died physically, but something that would happen at that particular moment. And what transpired at that moment was spiritual death, separation from God, so that uh, a little later on that afternoon when God came as he did every afternoon to spend time with Adam and Eve in the garden, uh, they ran and hid, indicating that something had changed in their nature. They were now uh, spiritually dead, so that there is a barrier now between man and God, man who was created initially in God's image, created righteous, created holy, reflecting God's character, now has had that that image corrupted, that image is marred by sin, and so a barrier has been erected between man and God. Uh, scripture teaches that uh, in terms of this barrier, there's different elements. The primary element, the foundational element, is the fact 
of sin. Sin means to violate the standards and the uh, character of God. Anything that we do that violates the standards of the character of God is a sin. You may not think it's so horrible or egregious. Eating a piece of fruit's not so bad. But it was done in disobedience to God, and that is what plunged the human race into sin. Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The effect of the fall is universal. All have sinned. Everyone is guilty. No one gets away. Everyone is born a sinner because we are born having inherited uh, Adam's original sin. Romans 5.15 we read, But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died. That's the point I want to go to here. It is by the one man's offense. It is by Adam's sin that the entire human race fell into sin and under condemnation. All are condemned. Not, But the sin, as I pointed out last week, not only affected the human race, not only affected our relationship to God, but Romans 8, 20, and 21 says that sin was so devastating that it permeated all of creation. The physical creation itself was corrupted and marred by Adam's act of disobedience. That goes far beyond what most people think about the effects of sin. One of the reasons that people have difficulty understanding certain aspects of salvation and the extent of what God does for the believer at the moment of faith alone in Christ alone is because they have such a small view of sin. They don't understand how sinful sin is, how corrupting it is, how totally corrupting it is, that it has affected not only every area of man's being, but it has affected every aspect of the creation. This is what God outlines to Adam and the woman in Genesis chapter 3 in the section commonly referred to as the curse, that the animal kingdom has been affected, that the serpent was cursed more than all of the animals, indicating that all of the animals received some level of judgment or consequences because of Adam's sin. The woman's ability to give birth is now marred by pain and discomfort because of this. Before the fall, one of the responsibilities of of man was to be fruitful and multiply. And what happens as a result of the curse is that now there is going to be pain in the midst of childbirth. All of the responsibilities man had prior to the fall are now corrupted. There's, There's difficulty. There is conflict involved. And uh, man was to have a harmonious relationship between uh, the husband and wife. But now there's going to be a battle. Uh, God warned the woman, says that your desire is for uh, the husband, but he will rule over you. And that desire, that word for desire there is that the general tendency on the part of the sin nature of every woman down through history is to dominate the man. And the tendency on the part of the sin nature of the man is to uh, tyrannically dominate. That's what that word means. He will rule over you. His desire is to control you. The only thing that reverses that, of course, is going to be regeneration and spiritual growth and the application of doctrine. But man left in his fallen condition is in a state of conflict, is in a state of 
of two people who are promoting their own self-will, constantly rubbing up uh, against one another in hostility and in friction, creating all kinds of problems down through the ages. So it affects, it affects the womb, it affects uh, the animal kingdom, it affects the marriage, it affects the nature of what, what makes men men and women women, and it, sin also affects the very ground, for God told Adam that now thorns and thistles would spring out of the ground, and that his responsibility to take care of the earth is going to come under conflict because of the curse on the ground itself. In fact, it would also affect his physical life, or eventually his body would wear out, and he would die physically, and his physical body would return uh, to the dust. Romans chapter 8, verses 20 and 21, Paul reminds us of the extent of this sin when he says that the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. The point here is is that when Jesus returns at the second coming, there will be a rolling back of the curse on creation, but there is a corruption that extends not just to man's relationship to God, but throughout all of all of creation. For you see, the work of Christ on the cross for redemption in the paying of the sin penalty not only provides the basis for our uh, salvation, our reconciliation to God, our justification, but it also will eventuate in the rollback of the curse on creation. And this is one of the ways in which the word redeemed is frequently used in the New Testament, looking forward to a future completion of redemption, that is, that is something that goes beyond the simple payment of the sin penalty on the cross. So in order to understand these things, we have to look at the full orbed aspects of the sin problem. Not only is there the problem of the fact of sin, but the penalty of sin. The penalty of sin that man is, since Adam sinned, born spiritually dead. Ephesians 2.1, you he made alive who were born dead in trespasses and sins. That's the idea. We are born spiritually dead. We're physically alive, but we're born with a deficit. We are corrupted by by sin and by the sin nature. Man cannot have a relationship with God until that sin penalty has been taken care of. There's another dimension to the sin problem, and that is the character of God. God is absolute righteousness, and he is perfect justice. And because of his righteousness, he cannot have fellowship with that which is less than righteousness. And because of his perfect justice, he must condemn or judge that which has violated his character. So his character must be, this character issue must be resolved. And that takes place under what the Bible refers to as propitiation, God's character His justice, his righteousness are satisfied by Christ's death on the cross. And then we have the the three aspects of the sin problem that are left all have to do with what goes on subjectively in man. He is born spiritually dead. He lacks the perfect righteousness of God, and he is born in Adam. Those three elements are dealt with separately by the application of Christ's death 
to the individual. We'll get into that in just a little bit. I'm not uh, doing a full-bore study on the barrier uh, between man and God. We're just looking at God's solution in terms of the fact of sin through the unlimited atonement of Jesus Christ on the cross and the redemption payment which takes care of the penalty of sin. So as we get into this, I want to go th- begin by looking at redemption terminology, the words that are used in the Old Testament and in the New Testament to help us understand this whole doctrine are very, uh, very important and very illustrative. In the Old Testament, there are two key words that are used to, to talk, about, uh, talk about redemption. The first is the Hebrew word pada, which refers to the payment of a price to free something from some state, such as slavery or death or destruction. It is the payment of a price to free a slave from the slave market of sin. It always emphasizes the payment of a price. Whenever you think of the word redemption, you need to think of paying a price. It is a financial term at its core, the payment of a price. We find this word used several times in the book of Exodus, primarily as it goes back to the Exodus event itself. As we'll see a little further on in our study, there are two key events in the Old Testament that provide our picture for understanding redemption. And so when you think of redemption, what ought to come into your head is these two visuals that God provided Old Testament believers to help them understand this sort of abstract doctrine. The first is the redemption of Israel from slavery in Egypt. That was pictured in the Passover and was rehearsed in the Passover meal, which comes over into the Lord's table. So having celebrated the Lord's table this morning, the focal point there is on the completion of that uh, redemptive work of Christ on the cross. So the first picture in your head is the redemption of Israel from Egypt, from slavery in Egypt. The second picture is the picture of the kinsman redeemer, the kinsman redeemer. This is pictured in the book of Ruth in the Old Testament, and we'll get into that in just a, just a little bit. So pada is the first word. We find it in passages such as Exodus 13, 13. But every offspring of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. But if you do not redeem it, then you shall break its neck, and every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. In other words, there was a payment price, a recognition that when these, when, when the firstborn of an animal came, it was a gift from God. And so there, a redemption price, a sacrifice was given uh, in recognition of the fact that that God had provided this. Uh, Exodus 13:15. it came about when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go that the Lord killed every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. So this uh, shows the idea of redemption going back to this, the Exodus event. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord the males, the firstborn, the first offspring of every womb, but every firstborn of my sons I redeem. So in the family, when, a firstborn, when the firstborn son came, a, a payment price was taken to the tabernacle uh, in recognition of the fact that God had not only provided the firstborn son, but also in memory of the fact of, of what had happened at the Exodus, that the firstborn 
males were taken unless there was a blood covering on on the door. And, of course, all of this has imagery that relates to the fact that Jesus Christ is referred to as the firstborn, the preeminent son of God. Second word that we find in the in the Old Testament that is related to redemption is the word ga'al. The verb is ga'al and the noun is go'el. Ga'al and go'el. Now, the reason I bring the noun in is the noun is significant in relationship to the, to the book of Ruth and the concept of the kinsman redeemer. The verb has the primary meaning of paying a price. Again, whenever you think of redemption, it's that idea of a price is paid. So the root word is to pay a price, to pay the value assessed. The noun emphasizes a kinsman redeemer, and the idea there is often protection. And when you read of the noun, the redeemer, the idea there is that one who protects. The goel emphasizes the responsibility of blood relatives to provide for and to protect blood relatives. Emphasis on protection. So there is a, a development of the concept from paying a price to protecting uh, those uh, under, for whom one is responsible. The first place we see this word used in the Old Testament is in Genesis 48:15 and 16, when Jacob is blessing Joseph's sons. And he blessed Joseph and said, God, before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has fed me all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. And the emphasis there is not so much on the payment of a price, but on the fact that it is the angel of the Lord who protected Jacob through his, through his various travels. Remember when Jacob left the land and was uh, going to his relatives up in Padan Aram, as we studied in our Genesis series on Tuesday nights, that as he left the land, God met him at Bethel and promised that he would be with him and would prosper him and protect him while he was out of the land and that God would bring him back to the land, which is exactly what God did. And so in Genesis 48, uh, Jacob is rehearsing this to his son Joseph and to his, to his grandson and the idea that God had continuously protected him. The next place that we have the word used is in Exodus 6.6. 6. Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Now there we have an emphasis on the meaning of the paying of a price. It's used as an expansion of the phrase, I will rescue you from their bondage. The word there for rescue is the hithil form of the verb natsal, meaning to snatch away or to deliver, to rescue from enemies or trouble. How is that rescue done? It is done through the payment of a price. And that payment of a price was pictured in the Exodus event by taking the lamb that was without spot or blemish and by sacrificing that lamb. And then the blood of the lamb was spread on the doorpost of the house, and that would, if you connected the dots, it would be in the shape of a cross. And so that foreshadowed the eventual work of Christ on the cross, and it was the payment of that lamb. When that lamb was sacrificed, and that blood was applied to the doorpost of the house, 
Then the, the death angel that came that was to take the life of the firstborn would then pass over that house because the house was covered by the blood. That's the imagery that we get when we come to the New Testament and we hear that Jesus is the one who redeemed us by means of his blood. Then when we come into the, the New Testament, there are actually seven different Greek words or eight different Greek words that are used for redemption. And they all come back to this same root idea of the payment of a price. If you'll, you'll notice as I go through the first uh, six that they all have at their root the, the uh, syllable L-U. L-U, and this comes from a, a root Greek verb, luo, meaning to loose or to release. So the basic idea here is to release something by the payment of a price. The first word is antilutron. Antilutron has the idea of substituting money, the payment for the freedom of a slave or a prisoner. Usually this is translated ransomed, and it has the idea of purchasing freedom from slavery. In 1 Timothy uh, 2, verses six, verse 6, this is used with the preposition huper, indicating payment uh, of a price for someone in substitution for someone. Then we have the noun apolutrosis, which means deliverance procured by the payment of a ransom. To release a slave upon receipt of a ransom, used in Romans 3.24, Romans 8.23, 1 Corinthians 1.30, Ephesians 1, 7 and 14, and Ephesians 4, 30. The payment of a ransom price to release a slave from slavery. Then we have a noun, lutron. This is the root. The two previous words, anti-lutron, apa-lutrosis, had prefixes. This is more the root noun. has the idea of the payment of a ransom in order to set free, in order to let someone loose. Then the verb that is built on lutron is the verb lutrao, which means to pay the ransom price. Lutron is the ransom price itself. Lutrao, to pay the ransom price, to deliver by ransom, to liberate. In the middle voice, the way it is used in 1 Peter 1, 17 to 19, it means to redeem. Then we have another noun, lutrosis, meaning redemption, deliverance or freedom. When we are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, we are given true freedom. The only basis for freedom in life starts at the cross. When Jesus was in confrontation with the Pharisees at one point, he told them that they were uh, slaves to their father, the devil. And they said, no, we're, we're free. And they were completely ignorant of the fact that at that time they were really slaves in several ways. They were enslaved to, their, uh, to, enslaved to sin. They were enslaved to their religious system, the Pharisaical system. They were enslaved to the Roman Empire. But the root cause of their slavery to religion and their slavery to the Roman Empire was because they were enslaved to their own sin nature. Until that situation is resolved, mankind is always in Slavery, So there must be a redemption for real freedom. Sixth, we have the noun lutrotes, which means a redeemer. 
not just redemption, but now lutrotes refers to the redeemer, the deliverer, the one who pays for the freedom of the nation. Acts 7.35, this refers to Moses as the redeemer of Israel. Now, all of these six that we've seen so far all built off of the same root, various uh, forms of that same root word for redemption. And then the last two that we look at come off of another word uh, based on that noun, uh, agora, meaning the, the marketplace. We have agorazo, the purchase, to purchase something or to buy something in the marketplace. It's used 31 times in the New Testament. Christ paid the price to purchase those who are slaves to sin, 1 Corinthians 6.20 and 1 Corinthians 7.23. And then last we have the verb ex agorazo. Ex means out of. So it means to purchase something out from the slave market to completely and totally liberate a slave. The price is completely and totally paid. It means that nothing can be added to the price. You can't come along and help out. Uh, if you were to go to a restaurant and we were to go out and I were to go out to lunch with you and at the end of the meal, perhaps you have to get up and, and go to the restroom and while you're gone, I pay the price. I pay the price and I pay the tip. There's nothing you can add to it. It's paid for. It's actually, truly, completely paid for. And so when you come back, you say, no, no I was going to buy your lunch. No, it's paid for. You can't do anything else no matter what happens it's paid for you cannot add to it in fact if you were to attempt to it would be uh, somewhat ungracious on your part for not being willing to accept that which was done uh, completely for you and too often that's the problem with too many Christians is they're uh, trying to add to the work of Christ which you can't do and that is really a slap in God's face it's rather insulting because what you're saying is I really don't want to accept the fact that Jesus did it all. I want to somehow uh, add to it as if my measly, rotten works out of my own depravity can somehow help what the perfect Son of God did on the cross. So what we see from all of these different words that are used, from the Old Testament words and New Testament words, is this idea of purchase, the idea of buying, the idea of setting something free is at the very core of the idea of redemption. Now let's go back and look at some of the uh, pictures in the Old Testament. The first picture I pointed out is the picture uh, from the Exodus, the picture of redemption. Passages such as Exodus 6:6 6, 6 and uh, Exodus chapter, uh, I mean Exodus 15:13, emphasize uh, this dimension of the Exodus event. God said ahead of time, "I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments." Gaal. Uh, Exodus 15:13 In thy loving kindness thou hast led thy people whom thou hast redeemed by this time it had already been accomplished God is the one who paid the price and freed the people from their slavery in Egypt he did this through the sacrifice of the Passover lamb we see this <coughs> illustrated in a number of passages in the Old Testament such as Deuteronomy uh, 7 verse 8 because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers the Lord, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery in Egypt Deuteronomy 9 uh, 26 thy people even thine inheritance whom thou hast redeemed 
through thy greatness. I'm just going to quote the key phrases in each of these verses. Deuteronomy 13, 15. Uh, the Lord your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. Uh, Deuteronomy 15.15, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Deuteronomy 21.8, Forgive thy people Israel whom thou hast redeemed, O Lord. See, he has purchased them. Deuteronomy 24.18, But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, that the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Now, the application of this to the church age believer is that, or the picture here is that we are born slaves to sin. We are born dead in our trespasses and sins. We only have one option, and that is to operate on the basis of our sin nature. Sin nature can produce all kinds of morality, all kinds of good works, all kinds of religious operation. Just look at the Pharisees. But the Lord Jesus Christ said that they were like graves. They were like uh, whitewashed sepulchers. In, on the outside, they looked good. They were painted white, but on the inside, they were dead men's bones. And that is how every person is. They can produce good deeds, but they have no spiritual value. They have uh, no value as far as God is concerned. But just as God freed the Jews from slavery in Egypt, so Jesus Christ has paid the redemption price to free us from slavery to the sin nature. Now, the second great illustration that comes out of the Old Testament is that of the Goel, the Goel, the kinsman redeemer. And this was the idea that if someone, uh, for, for example, in a marriage, if the husband died and the wife was left without resources, then the uh, 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 brother of the dead husband could come along and take her as his wife and marry her and to uh, protect her and to pay whatever debts there were. And so if there were a brother that was unmarried, then he would be the kinsman redeemer. And the picture of this is that the one who redeems mankind must be a kinsman, can't be some other creature, but must be a full, true human being. And this is the picture that is that is given there from the book of Ruth, the kinsman redeemer. So the two elements that we have in the picture of redemption from the Old Testament is first of all the picture of the payment of a price freeing from slavery of sin and secondly that it must be done by a kinsman redeemer. This is exactly what we see in the Lord Jesus Christ. There are five characteristics of the Redeemer that apply to Jesus Christ. First of all, the Redeemer was a blood relative of the one he was to redeem. Jesus Christ is our blood relative. He is true humanity. Second, the Redeemer must be willing to redeem. Deuteronomy 25, 7 through 10. Christ voluntarily left heaven to pay the price for our sins, according to Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Third, the Redeemer must be able to redeem. He must be able to pay the redemption price. Only Jesus Christ could pay the price of our redemption. Only He was perfect and without sin. Fourth, the Redeemer, the Goel, must be free Himself from the calamity uh, from which He must free uh, His kinsmen. Jesus Christ, because He was free from sin, could pay the redemption price. And then fifth, the Redeemer must act to pay 
the redemption price. This is what Jesus Christ did. In the Old Testament, according to in, in Isaiah chapters 40 through 66, uh, Yahweh is presented as the Redeemer par excellence. Isaiah 41:14. Do not fear, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you, declares the Lord, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Redemption was paid for completely by God in the Old Testament for Israel. There were no conditions placed upon them for that redemption other than to accept it. That is the picture of New Testament redemption. God does not redeem wonderful, lovely people. The Jews were uh, rebellious. The Exodus generation consistently rebelled against him, disobeyed him, and yet in grace God freed them knowing full well their failures. The same is true for us. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sins knowing full well that we would fail many times, that we would be carnal many times. In, in, in worst case scenario, there would be those who would accept Christ as Savior and then uh, continue to live a life characterized by sin and rebellion towards God. Nevertheless, the redemption price was sufficient to take care of their salvation. This gives us a picture of the Old Testament aspect of redemption. We'll come back next time and look at this as it is developed in the New Testament the work of Christ on the cross, and then come to understand what this means when we read that our redemption is by his blood. What is the significance of that phrase? With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word today, to uh, have our thinking refreshed by an understanding of your uh, magnificent grace that you provided the complete payment for our sins as Jesus said on the cross, when he had finished paying the penalty for our sins, it is finished. He used a form of the Greek word indicating complete payment. Nothing more could be added. Perhaps you're here this morning, you've never fully understood the gospel before. You've never fully understood what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross. He paid the penalty for your sin. He conducted a transaction on that cross whereby you were freed from slavery to sin, but the application of that to you is dependent upon your decision. It is up to you whether or not you accept that payment on your behalf, whether or not you trust in him. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. This is your opportunity to put your faith alone in Christ alone. At the instant that you decide to trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, God the Father knows what you have done. He understands your, where your trust lies. And at that instant, you are declared just. There is the imputation of Christ's perfect righteousness, the declaration of your justification, and you are born again and given eternal life that can never be taken from you. It is not based on who you are or what you have done, but on who God is and what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Now, Father, we pray that as we uh, go forth today and that you would constantly remind us of what we have learned this morning, that we may be aware of the magnificence of your grace and how undeserving we have been, but how complete and sufficient your salvation is for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.